0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Well, it's July, so we're done with celebrating sexual perversion now that Pride Month is over, right? Right. Well, maybe not. You know who this guy is? <laughs> uh, this is called. Uh, she call. He calls herself his. I can't even say it. He call, He calls himself Rachel. This is trans woman. You know what trans woman means? Man. Confused man. Okay. Uh, Rachel Levine. He's Assistant Secretary for Health for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And last week he said this, Happy Pride Month, and actually, let's declare it Summer of Pride. Happy, Happy Summer of Pride. This is one of the highest-ranking officials in the Biden administration, so they just, you know, months not a day wasn't enough, a week's not enough, a month's not even enough. Let's just take the whole summer to celebrate Pride. Believers, I hope you're realizing the left is doing all it can to normalize sexual perversion. And through normalizing transgenderism and the making of trans kids, the goal is to legalize pedophilia in America. That is their bottom line goal. I saw this cartoon. I thought this is perfect. You know, you got the Trojan horse there, that's the LGBT, Q, elemental P, whatever. And they're looking for social acceptance, but inside the horse, you got the pedophiles, and that's what they're trying to do. They want to make this normal. They're they're out there pushing that right now. They want to change, get away from the word pedophilia. They want it to be called maps. Minor attracted persons. Okay. And they say that pedophilia should be a sexual orientation and should join the LGBTQ community. On June 23rd, New York City had a drag march, and the marchers chanted, We're here, we're queer, we're coming for your children. They chanted it over and over, We're here. They're not even trying to hide it anymore. Okay, And what parent in the right mind takes their child to these parades where people are marching around nude? What is wrong with these parents? But that's their goal. Now, the Journal of Sex Research found that homosexual pedophiles commit about one-third of the total number of sex offenses against children. Now, that's kind of disturbing since the homosexual population is about maybe 2% of the total population, and yet they're responsible, 2% of the population is responsible for 33% of child sexual abuse. They offend against children 16 times the rate of the normal population. The Archives of Sexual Behavior, in a study of 229 convicted child molesters, found that 86% of the offenders against males described themselves as homosexual. Or bisexual. And again, their bottom line is to normalize pedophilia. And and the reason we're talking about this in the in the sense of talking about the family, the reason we're talking about the roles is because I believe they're out to try to destroy the family. But I think that if we as Christians don't live out the roles that God has called us to, we don't need them to destroy the family, we destroy it ourselves. When we don't follow our God-given roles, when we don't live these out, it's not like these are suggestions that God's making. God said, I created the family, here's the design of the family, and we're to follow that. But too often we're not doing that, and we ourselves are destroying the family. And we have to understand, and we'll see in this text, that the family is a picture of Christ and His church. That's what it's supposed to be. When people look at the Christian family, they said, see, that's how much Christ loves the church. That's how much the church submits to Christ. Look at that family. Now, in our last study in Ephesians 5, we were looking at the responsibility of the husbands to love their wives. We only looked at one verse, so we got eight to go. So buckle up and let's fly through these, okay? Last time we looked at husbands, love your wives. The Greek word here, Agapao. <coughs> Agapago is portrayed as a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one love. Agapago here is a present tense imperative indicating continuous action. So we could translate this, husbands, keep on loving your wives. All right? Now, as I said last week, this exhortation to husbands to love their wives, this is unique. This is not found in the Tanakh. It's not found in rabbinic literature. It's not found in the household codes of the Greco-Roman world. So this, if you're a first century husband, and you're hearing this, this is radical. It's revolutionary. It was never heard of before. It is uniquely Christian. So Christianity literally is changing the world, changing the family. How are we to love our wives? Well, the model... And the ground of the husband's love for their wives is Christ's love for His church. And he says, we're to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. As I said last week, I think this is one of the most difficult commands in Scripture, because we're commanded to be continually loving our wives, and that's tough, but then it says, just as Christ loved the church. Which means, guys, and get this, You cannot love your wives apart from sacrifice. Can't do it. John Chrysostom, who preached in the 4th century, he was called the Golden Mouth Order, he writes this. He says, "...Hast thou seen the measure of obedience? Hear also the measure of love. What's thou that thy wife would obey thee as the church doth Christ?" Have care of thyself for her as Christ doth the church. And if it should be needful that thou dost give thy life for her and be cut to pieces a thousand times or endure anything whatever, refuse it not. Yea, if thou hast suffered this, thou hast not done what Christ did. For thou didst doest this for one whom thou were already united, but Christ for, who, for her who rejected him and hated him and brought her to his feet by his great care, not by threats, not by fear, nor any such thing, so thou conduct thyself toward thy wife. Now, if you feel this is impossible, it is in our strength. And that's why we have to keep the context here in Ephesians in mind. All these verses are preceded by be controlled by the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. Because without the Spirit, the Holy Spirit replacing our selfishness with the fruit of the Spirit, which begins with love, we're never going to make progress toward loving our wives as Christ loved the church. We're never going to live out these commands. Because Christianity is supernatural. And we're to walk in the Spirit in order to do these things. So, if you're having problems loving your wife, the issue is, not being controlled by the Spirit, which means you're probably not spending enough time in the Word of God, memorizing, pouring over it, studying it. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this, The real cause of failure, ultimately in marriage, is always self and various manifestations of self. Of course, that's the cause of trouble everywhere, in every realm. Self and selfishness are the greatest disrupting forces in the world. Anybody want to argue with that? <laughs> I believe, men, that the main responsibility for setting a loving climate in the home is the responsibility of the husband as the head of the home. Husbands are the head of the family and were to be leading in the area of loving. So if there's a problem in the home, men, take the responsibility and fix it. Now, Paul now goes on to demonstrate what Christ's love for the church has accomplished. And he's talking here about Christ and the church. And he says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. So Paul here presents the purpose or the goal of Christ's love for the church And he uses three hinnah purpose clauses. The first one being that he might sanctify her. The word sanctify here is from the Greek word hagiadzo. And it means to separate, to set apart for God's purposes. Set that apart. Christ is setting the church aside for his purpose. Now, When you talk about sanctification, there's a traditional view that most of the church holds, that most of the futurists who are traditional hold this view on sanctification and preterists hold a little different view. So let's look at these and see if we can understand what's going on here. First of all, there's positional sanctification. This happens at the moment of salvation. This is a state of holiness that is imputed, not imparted, imputed to the Christian at the moment of their conversion to Christ. Yahweh sets us apart for Himself. And in this sense, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1-2, to the church of God that is in Corinth. Now, you know about the Corinthian church, okay? It's the most messed up church, all right, that there was. And watch what he says, to those sanctified in Christ Yeshua, called by saints. A better rendering here would be saints by calling, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Yeshua the Christ, both their Lord and ours. So this is positional. We? Christ sets us apart for Himself at salvation. Then there's progressive sanctification. Now here's where we really differ, because most of the church views this as our personal growth into Christ-likeness, like we're we're, we're starting out, and then we're trying to be like Christ, we're growing into being like Christ in a progressive way. It's This progress was taking place in the first century church. The first century church was growing into the image of Christ. We today are not. We are that way at the moment of salvation. Look at 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. And this is the idea, they're being transformed into the image of Christ. Into that same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Alright, so they're moving from one glory to another glory. Now, if you look at the context here, this is talking about the glory of the Old Covenant. The glory of the New Covenant. If we back up to verse 9, it says, For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, that's the Old Covenant, the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. That's the New Covenant. So they're being transformed. There's just two glories here, people. Old Covenant glory, New Covenant glory, they are being transformed. That was the transition saints who lived from 30 A.D. to 70 A.D., We're being transformed into the image of Christ. Look what Paul says in Ephesians 2. He says, "...in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." So in verse 21, we see the building is still in progress. It's still in construction because it's growing. Now the present tense verb shows the continuance of growth and progress indicating a living organism that's increasing. It's not your normal building. It's gro- this building is growing. And verse 22 talks about the ongoing process of the building being built. The growing process can only be understood by someone who understands fulfilled eschatology. Only they know what time it is. See, the building is no longer being built. The building was finished in the first century. It was finished in AD 70, and Yahweh moved into the building. Okay, Most see this as a process that's still happening today, but this transformation, as I said, was complete in AD 70. And then there's ultimate sanctification. And traditionally, this is said to be the state of holiness that we will not attain in this life, but we realize when we're finally in the presence of God. It's also called glorification. This is the church being made completely holy at the moment that Christ returns. This also happened in AD 70 and was made manifest by the destruction of Jerusalem. So every aspect of sanctification is done by Christ. All believers have been sanctified. We have been set apart for Yahweh. So this verse, that He might sanctify her, is giving us Christ's goal in loving the church and giving himself up for her. This is why he gave himself, so he would set her apart. And he's using Christ here as an example of love. And a Christian husband who loves his wife will guard the exclusivity of his relationship with his wife. The church is being set apart just for Christ, not for anybody else. It's for him. There's exclusivity here. And the husband is going to do that same thing. He's going to set his wife apart. He will sanctify her. In practical terms, men, this means that you put a protective fence around your love for your wife. So there's really no place for flirting with other women. I think it's dangerous and inappropriate, this is my opinion, for a married man to continue or to form friendships with women other than his wife unless the wife is fully involved in that relationship. You say, well, that's a little strict, isn't it? Well, the man who discipled me drilled this into my head almost to the point that I was afraid to talk to women. You're never alone with a woman. You're never alone with a woman in the car. You're never alone with a woman in the house. You're never alone with a- I couldn't take the babysitter home. Kathy had to do it. Okay, I just... But that was a fence that was built. Okay, and 50 years later, we're still married. So these fences have some significance, Okay. Don't think you just, you know, you don't just fall into these relationships. If you're not protecting yourself, you can end up in trouble. In marriage, the husband is set apart for the wife, and the wife is set apart for the husband. And any interference with that setting apart is sin. So we have to guard that. Then he says, having cleansed her. Speaking of the church, Christ has cleansed the church. This deals with a negative aspect of being cleansed from defilement from sin. Whereas sanctification is the positive aspect, that of being set apart for Yahweh. Now this cleansing takes place at the moment of salvation. So both the actions of sanctification and cleansing occur at the same time and would be better translated, in order that He might sanctify her having cleansed her. This cleansing is effected by the washing of water with the Word. Now, you read that and you may be thinking, well, isn't the church cleansed and sanctified by the blood of Christ? Well, the scriptures do teach this. In 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, it says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold. In other words, you would ransom somebody, you would buy them back with silver or gold. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. Now, this is the blood of Christ is not something magical. This is metonymy for the death of Christ. Christ could not have just bled. He had to die. And when we speak of the blood of Christ, that's metonymy, speaking of the act of the death of Christ. So he, Scripture uses this imagery of washing in our relationship, our cleansing from sin. Yes, the blood cleanses the death of Christ cleanses us, but it's also a washing that takes place. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, very similar to our verse here in Ephesians 6.11. He says, Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. There's the sanctification by the washing. You were justified in the name of the Lord Yeshua the Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, many commentators understand this washing of water here with the word to refer to baptism. But there's nothing in the context here to indicate baptism. The term word is used nowhere else in the New Testament in connection with baptism. Paul says the washing of water is with the word. Now the Greek word used here for word is rhema, and it means the spoken or the preached word. And it probably refers to the gospel. The word is not something additional to the spiritual cleansing. It's the means by which it is accomplished. It is through the word of the gospel that we are cleansed, that we are set apart for Yahweh. Yeshua told His disciples when they were meeting in the upper room that they were clean because of the word that He had spoken to them. John 15, 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Now in chapter 13, He says, You are clean, but not all of you. Because in chapter 13, Judas is there. Chapter 15, Judas is gone, so He says, You are clean. And you're cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. The gospel is a cleansing agent. It is the good news of Christ's atoning death at Calvary. So the word also sanctifies us, because he says in John 17, 17, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And people, that's why it's so important for us to read and study the Scriptures. The Scriptures cleanse us. They're a cleansing agent. They also sanctify us. It's amazing what the Word of God will do for your life if you spend some time in it. It's a supernatural book, people. It's not just a something man wrote. It is a living Word of God, and as you spend time in it, it will transform you. It will change your thinking. Now, when Paul talks about this washing... He may have been thinking about Ezekiel 16, where Yahweh describes how he entered into a marriage covenant with his bride, Israel. 16.8 and 9 says, When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread my corner, the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord Yahweh and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water, and I washed off your blood. Here's this cleansing taking place. From you and anointed you with oil. Now, the Targum, which is an ancient Aramaic paraphrase of the interpretation of the Hebrew Bible, explains this of the time of redemption of the people of Israel out of Egypt. And I think that's most likely what he's talking about. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, He made them His own. He entered into a covenant with them. He set them apart. He cleansed them. Now this is what Yeshua has done for the church. And this metaphorical metaphorical expression of salvation, the washing of water, most likely also invokes the imagery of the bridal bath. See, in Palestine, before the bride was married, before she went to the ceremony, she passed through the ceremonial purifying waters and she was made clean before she united with her husband. This prenuptial bath in Jewish marital customs reflected this imagery of Yahweh's marriage to Israel in Ezekiel 16. So the reason he sanctifies and cleanses bride, the church, is so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now this is the second Hina Purpose Clause, which shows the purpose of Christ's death. In this context, Christ presents the church to Himself. And He has done everything necessary to achieve this goal. This presentation of the church in all her glory, again, probably reflects the imagery of Ezekiel 16, 10-13. God says to Israel, I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. "'I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. "'I adorned you with ornaments "'and put bracelets on your wrist "'and a chain on your neck, "'and I put a ring on your nose "'and earrings in your ears "'and a beautiful crown on your head. "'Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, "'and your clothing was of fine linen and silk "'and embroidered cloth. "'You ate fine flour and honey and oil.' You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. This is a picture of the bride and all its glory. Now let me ask you something: When does Christ present the church to Himself? When is that supposed to happen? Well, that'd be at the Parousia, right? That's what most people would say. Christ does this at the Parousia. I'd agree. But they see the parsi as a yet future event. Okay? Revelation 21.9 says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. And he spoke to me, saying, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now, the Lamb here is Christ. His wife is the bride. Is the, that's the church. So the angel says, Come on, let me show you the bride. And then he, the next verse says this, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. So the Lamb is Christ, his wife is the bride, and then he says, Let me show you her, and he shows him Jerusalem. The holy city. So would you say that the holy city, Jerusalem, is the bride? That's what it sounds like. But if we go to Galatians 2.24-26, through 26, now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants, He's talking about two women, Hagar and Sarah. And he says they represent two different covenants, old and new. One from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery, she's Hagar. Now, Hagar's Mount Sinai in Arabia, she corresponds to the present Jerusalem, the one at that time, which was in bondage under the old covenant. She's in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She's our mother. So we got two covenants, two Jerusalems, one present in bondage, one above that is free. So the bride is the new Jerusalem, which is the new covenant church. So when was Christ to take his bride? Well, according to Paul, he told the seven churches in Asia, Revelation 22, 7, Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And then in verse 10, he says, And he said to me, Don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Now, Revelation starts with two time statements in the first three verses and ends with five time statements in Revelation 22. That's a total of seven, and it's bracketed by these time statements. So everything is to happen soon. So to us, it's not near. It couldn't have been near 2,000 years ago and then been near today. If the word near means anything, if the word soon means anything, you can't have soon in 2,000 years yet, still soon. Ask any Christian today, when do you think Christ is coming? And they're going to say, soon. And you just say, how long is soon? Because he said this 2,000 years ago, I'm coming soon, and we're still 2,000 years away. What, does, what is the definition of soon? I I don't know why this is hard. It doesn't seem hard to me. Now, the oriental marriage was characterized by three things. First, the betrothal. And the parents arranged this, you know, mostly. It wasn't up to the individuals. Usually, as a rule, the father would arrange the marriage for his daughter. And the marriage was the legal marriage when the betrothal took place. Now... A lot of people like to take the betrothal and make it like an engagement. No, it's not even any comparison because engagements are broken off. No, you know, I just changed my mind. Sorry. See you later. It doesn't work that way. If a man died who was betrothed to a woman, the woman was considered a widow. Even though they'd never lived together, they'd never been together, because that was the beginning of the marriage legally. The period was also known as Kirushim, meaning sanctification or set apart. So that word really defines the purpose of this betrothal period. It's a time in which the couple set apart, set aside, to prepare themselves to enter into the covenant of marriage. So following the betrothal ceremony, they'd have a ceremony where, okay, these two are getting betrothed. The groom would return to his home to fulfill his obligations during that betrothal. But just prior to leaving, he would give the wife a bridal gift, He would give her a pledge of His love. And its purpose was to be a reminder to the bride that during the days of their separation, this would remind her of His love for her. That He's thinking of her. That He would return to receive her as His wife. So Yeshua, fulfilling this picture, left His bride, the church, a bridal gift of love. What was the gift the Lord gave His church? It was the Holy Spirit, according to Ephesians 1, 13, and 14, called the adobana, an engagement ring, literally, he calls the Holy Spirit. He gave the first century church this pledge or this gift of the Holy Spirit as a promise of his love that he would return for them. Now, during the betrothal, the groom's responsibility was to focus on preparing a place for them to live. And he didn't just go out and build a house for them. What would he do? You would add an addition on the Father's house. Okay, that's how they did it. They didn't build a new home, they just added an addition. Isn't this what Yeshua said He was doing? Let's go back to John 14. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. Remember the old translations had mansions? How do you have mansions inside a house? I don't know how that works. It must be a really big house to have mansions inside. That's a big house, okay? But you know, this is a correct translation. My father has a house. There's got a lot of rooms. If it were not so, what I've told you that I go and prepare a place for you. And the he's talk. Christ is talking to his bride. I'm going to prepare a place. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. He's fulfilling the part of the betrothed. He's going away, preparing a place, then to come back and get him. Now, during this time, the bride would consecrate herself and prepare holy garments for the upcoming marriage. It was usually like a year long, and one of the purposes was to make sure she's not pregnant. Okay, you go a year, okay, she's good, everything's fine. Then at a certain time, and we didn't know what the time was. The time was determined by the father. The father would say, son, go get your bride. It's time. You got the room built. Everything's ready. Go get her. He would come to the house of the bride because he had a place already. And he'd come with his friends and she would have a bunch of friends with her. And they'd come and they would take the bride. We people are selected by the father the first century church was selected by the Father to be the beloved son's loving and precious bride. And Yahweh bought them by his blood, and they belong to him, and he is their husband, and they are his wife. And then Yeshua left to prepare a place for his bride. And this is where most of the church is at today, right? They, the, he left to prepare a place And it's 2,000 years, and they're still waiting. Okay? If the bride is the first century church, how is it still waiting? They're dead. They're dust. Okay? They're not waiting for anything. And again, Yeshua says, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So he'd take the bride to the house, and there they would have the marriage feast. This is part number two. Now they're having a marriage feast. This is the second stage, the marriage feast. And listen, people, it's not like today. It's more than you have a sit-down dinner, you dance a few dances, and everybody goes home. This was seven full days of food, music, dancing, and celebration. Now that is a wedding, okay? Okay. So that meant everybody took off a week, you went together, and you basically partied for a week. This kind of gives you some indication on the importance of marriage to the first century. This celebration, this is a week celebration. I mean, we're partying, we're drinking, we're just having a great time. And then, after that, they would begin to live together. The final stage. So those three stages are all seen in the relationship with the church to Yeshua. Again, John 14, 3, he says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again and take you to be with myself, to where I am you may be also. Now, he's talking to first century disciples. The you here is those disciples. I'm going to take you to myself And where I am, you will be there too. I'm taking you to the Father's house to be with me. Okay? And if he didn't return in the first century to take them, then he deceived them somehow. But he did come. And in AD 70, he returned to take his bride and to celebrate his marriage supper. Notice what he says about the bride. She's going to be without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. This is not talking about wrinkles as a clothes. It's talking about wrinkle on the face. And it's a word picture that describes the body of Christ as not being worn or weather-beaten. She's perfect. I kind of have an idea that a 2,000-year-old bride would have some wrinkles. Okay? (laughs) And here's what I want you to understand here. The bride can do nothing to make herself beautiful. This is the work of Christ on the cross. He made her this way. He gave Himself for the church. He washed her. He made her glorious. He made her beautiful without spot or wrinkle. He set her apart for Himself that she might be holy and without blemish. This is the third Hina purpose clause that she would be holy and without blemish. Now is Paul referring to the position Of the first century bride or to their practice? If he's talking about their standing before God, is that what he's talking about or is he referring to how they live? They're going to be holy and without blemish. Which is it? Well, to answer wrongly here is going to cause a lot of confusion, people. He's talking about their position before him because he's doing this. She'll be holy and without blemish. Not talking about her character, not talking about her actions. He's talking about her position before Him. He made her this way. In the Old Covenant, these two adjectives, holy and blameless, were used to describe the unblemished animal set apart for Yahweh as an Old Covenant sacrifice. Also, we see that unholy men could not approach Yahweh, but only stand at a distance. There was always a a physical separation between sinful men and the holy God. So being made holy and blameless makes it possible for us to dwell in His presence because our sins and our uncleanliness have been removed by Christ. Now, commenting on this verse, John MacArthur writes this, You as a husband have the responsibility to wash your wife with the Word of God, to provide continual washings with the truth of the Holy Scriptures so that all the stains are taken away. So it's the husband's w- job to make the wife beautiful and stainless? And No, that's ridiculous. This is These verses, verses 26 through 27, are not talking about the husband's responsibility. Please get that. You can't do this for your wife. It's talking about Yeshua's love for the church and what He did for His bride to make her perfect. This is the work of Christ. Husband, you're not doing this. Now, in verse 28 through 33, Paul goes back to addressing the husband. Here's what you're supposed to do. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. In the same way, here is hautos, meaning in the same manner. It points back to the love of Christ described in verse 25 through 27. And the primary obligation of the husband is, this is a simple one, just imitate Christ. Just do what Christ has done, okay? Specifically, he's talking here about sacrifice. That's what the whole thing is about. Christ died for his bride to cleanse her, to wash her. So husbands, in the same way, that's how you should love your wives, as your own bodies. The head, Christ, loves the body, the church. So in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives who, as it were, their own bodies. Now the word here, should, stresses obligation. This is your obligation, husbands, to love their wives. The reference to love for one's own body is not a new and novel thought. It's rather a reality which is taken for granted. We see this in the Gospels, for example, in Matthew 24, they asked him, what's the greatest commandment? So he took all 613, he boils it down to two, and he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. In the seconds like it, you shall love your neighbor. Great. As yourself. What does that imply? You'll love yourself. Right? I mean, you can't love your neighbor as yourself if you don't love yourself, right? I believe that Paul's words in our text are a further commentary on the words of our Lord here in the Gospels. Neither Paul nor Yeshua are encouraging us to learn to love ourselves so we can love our wives. That's modern psychobabble, okay? Rather, he's pointing out the fact that normal people love their bodies. As seen by the way that they care for their bodies, they protect their bodies from danger. You pick up a hot pot, if you're smart, you put a glove on, right? Why? Because you love yourself and you don't want to be burnt, okay? We protect our bodies. And his point is that your wife is a part of your body, just as the church are members of Christ's body. And a husband and a wife, he says, are one flesh, And so when you love her, you're going to love your own body as when you're loving her. And this has profound implications for Christian marriage. For one thing, if your wife is hurting, you're hurting. Because she is part of your body. He who loves his wife loves himself. Paul's probably going back to creation of Eve, who was created not out of the dust like he was. Rather, she was taken out of his body. Bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. So husband and wife are not just two people rooming together. Their lives are to blend into one another. They actually become one. It is therefore true that what hurts the wife damages the husband. So you don't want to do that. It can't help but do so. Or we could put it this way. Husbands, if you're not loving your wife... You're hurting yourself. Any smart husband should realize that, okay? If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. (laughs) Happy wife, happy life, okay? For no one ever hated his own flesh. All right, that just, that's, it's natural for people to regard their own bodies as important. Now, there are some eccentrics who have engaged in self-mutilation, and there's some ascetics who sometimes regard it as beneficial to make their bodies uncomfortable as they can, but normally people don't act that way, okay? You take care of yourself. That's a given. A man may not like the way he looks, he may hate his personality, but he does cherish his body. And he'll go to great lengths to cool it when it's hot, to warm it when it's cold, He avoids pain whenever he can. He feeds himself when he's hungry. He attempts to satisfy any appetite that he has because he wants to take care of that body. And a husband is called to love his wife with that same devotion. Just think about that. Think what you do for yourself. Mostly everything, right? Usually the things we do are self-driven, and he said, just do that for your wife. That's how you're supposed to treat her. He says, but he nourishes and cherishes it. Now, the word nourish here comes from ektrepho, which means to feed. It's used in the Bible primarily of nurturing children, providing nurture, providing a climate for growth and development. And then the word cherishes here is the Greek talpo, and it means to brood which, you know, we use the word "brew" to describe a hen incubating an egg, which takes time, takes effort to be involved in doing that. The word means warmth, and it pictures a mother tenderly holding her infant against her to keep it warm from the cold. And Paul uses this word of a mother in 1 Thessalonians 2.7, But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own child. So Thelpo here is translated taking care. So the words nourish and cherish in this verse are interesting. They're terms usually associated with raising children. It implies that the husband cares about his wife's total being and exerts himself to provide for her in every way. Just as Christ does the church. He says that again. You know, you clothe your body, you bathe it, you protect it from discomfort, from pain, from harm, Your survival depends on it. And that is what Christ did for the church. And husbands, this is how we're to love our wives, just as Christ loved the church. And again, the idea here is sacrifice. He gave His life to a torturous death on a cross for His bride. And He says we're to do this because we're members of His body. Now the conjunction hotai here, because is introducing the reason why Christ takes tender care of the church, it's because we're members of His body. What has been said so far about Christ's care for the church applies to all believers. And the way that Christ cares for us, loving, forgiving, protecting, giving, that's how husbands are to love their wives. He says in verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, this was found in Genesis 2, and it was written about Adam and Eve, and neither one of them had a father or mother. So, obviously, it's given for our instruction to tell us that a man needs to be mature enough to leave his parents Before he enters into marriage. And this is what you do you leave and you cleave. Leave here is the Hebrew word azav, and it actually means to leave, to leave behind, to depart from, to let alone, to abandon, forsake, desert, and let alone. So important in marriage. You got to move away from that family. You create your own family. All right? And it says you hold fast. This is the Hebrew davak. And it means to cling to, to stick to, keep close, stay close, follow close, be joined together, be glued together. It's like a plywood. You know, plywood is just a bunch of wood glued together. You ever try to take it apart? It doesn't work too well. They're glued together. He teaches that the husband and wife are one flesh, and thus the husband is compelled to love his wife just like he does his own body. And when Yahweh instituted marriage, it was (laughs) between, it's crazy I have to say this, it was between a man and a woman. Okay? That's what marriage is all about. God invented marriage. There's no provision for man for man, woman for woman marriage, you know, man to animal, none of this other nonsense stuff. Okay? It was just, God invented it and He said, okay, take a man, take a woman, and let them join together. And that's how it is. And anything else is an abomination to Him. Now, The original was quoted in Genesis 2.24. Paul quotes that in Ephesians 5.31. What is the difference between the original in Genesis and Paul's quote? Paul adds one word that makes all the difference in the world. Last line, it says, And they shall become one flesh. Paul says, And the two shall become one flesh. Two isn't in any of the Hebrew manuscripts. But when when Yeshua quoted this verse, he added the word two, and that's why Paul adds it, because the Lord added it. He wants us to understand that marriage is between a man and a woman. The two, not three, not four, not five, the two become one. Marriage is between one male and one female. Made it very clear. That does away with polygamy, okay? It's not the three. The two shall become one. And it's significant that the Lord adds this to this text, giving us His view of marriage. And He says this mystery is profound. This is the Greek word musterion. And the Greek word occurs 27 times in the New Testament, three of which are in the Gospels where it's used the same in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, four in Revelation, and then 20 occurrences by Paul in his letters, And he uses this musterion in different shades of meaning in different texts. But the basic meaning is that it refers to God's revelation or disclosure of something that was formerly hidden. We didn't really understand this. We didn't know about this. This was a mystery. It's something undiscoverable by human reason. He didn't just sit down and figure this out. The knowledge of which could only be attained by revelation. This is a truth that has never been known before. It's a secret that is now being open. And the key idea is the mystery centers on God's eternal plan of bringing all things together in the person of Christ. And the mystery that Paul's referring to here is not marriage itself. The mystery is the union of Christ and the church. And he makes this clear by the next statement. And he says, I am saying that. It refers to Christ and his church. So this first marriage of Adam and Eve was a prototype of the ultimate marriage, which is the marriage of Christ and the church. And as Eve was created out of Adam's side, the church was begotten through the wounding of the Lord, Yeshua. This union of Christ and the church is to be reflected in the Christian marriage. Again, that's why this is so important. God creates the family. He says, here's the roles. Wife submit, husband love. As you do that, the people will look at you and they will see Christ and His church. The old covenant marriage is used typologically of the relationship between Yahweh and the covenant people Israel. And Yeshua took over the teaching and boldly referred to Himself as the bridegroom. He presented himself in the role of Yahweh in the divine marriage with the covenanted people of God. He says in verse 33, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Again, men, you love yourself. okay? Just love your wife in the same way. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, if you notice here, the order is reversed. He begins with the husband. And then he ends with the wife. So basically, he started with the wife and he ends with the wife. Alright? In this teaching. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Now throughout our study of this, the last couple of weeks, the instruction here to the Christian husband, we have not seen the term leader, leadership, or authority even mentioned by Paul. The key word that sums up Paul's exhortation to husbands is not leadership, it's love. And just to clarify what he means by love, because we're so confused on the idea of love. You know, I love hot dogs. I love my dog. I love my wife. You know, are they all the same? Well, I certainly hope not. So let me tell you, again, the biblical view of love, as Paul gives it. Here's husbands, here's how you love your wives. Love is patient and kind. I told you last week, I'm often not very patient, which means I'm not very loving, okay? Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Wow, how would marriages be transformed if we weren't insisting on our own way? It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is what biblical love, this is how we are called to love. Now you know it. Happy are you if you do it. Okay? The Lord says, if you know these things, you're happy if you do them. We know them. This is what love is. I would encourage you, husbands, to memorize this section of 1 Corinthians. You know, and then when you're being a jerk, when you're not being who God called you, you say, oh, love is patient, love is... Care. I'm not doing that, okay? This will give a handle to the Holy Spirit so when you're messing up, He can, hey, remember what the Bible... Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm not, I'm not boasting. I'm not supposed to be... I'm not supposed to insist on my own way. As you memorize the Word of God, again, that handle is there for the Holy Spirit to get your attention when He needs to. Verse thirty three. However, let each one of you love his wife, and then he says this: and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The word respect here is the Greek word phobeo. This word's used in Matthew's gospel when Yeshua heals the lame man. Yeshua told the guy, "Get up, take up your bed, and go home." So he gets up and begins to walk, and when the crowd saw it, they were phobeo. What does that mean? And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. In Matthew's gospel, I mean, when this is um, the New American Standard, translate this phobeo here as awestruck. I mean, you see a guy, he's been lame from birth. You know the guy, he's always laying around there. And all of a sudden the guy's up walking and you're just like, holy macro. This is the same word we see in Ephesians 5.21 that says, Submitting to one another out of reverence, for Christ. Reverence for the Lord is always demonstrated by obedience to the word. Proverbs 16.6 says, By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of Yahweh, one turns from evil. This verse tells us that the fear of Yahweh promotes holy living. As we are all to reverence Christ, the women here are told to reverence their husbands. The woman who truly reverences and respects her husband as she should is not going to do anything to bring disgrace, dishonor, or pain to the heart of her husband. Now please remember, husbands, wives, all this is only possible as we are controlled by the Spirit of God, as we're letting the Word of Christ dwell in us richly, we're controlled by the Spirit, then we can begin to live out these things. But it's not automatic. It's not something that just happens. It is the exact opposite. The more you neglect your marriage, the further it will deteriorate. The the second law of thermodynamics works in your marriage. You have to constantly work at it. And if you take a break, you're going to suffer the consequences of that. Alright? And believers... We are called to show the world the love of Christ for the church. We are to show the submissiveness of the church to Christ by our marriages. So as people look at your marriage, do they see the mystery of Christ in the church? They're supposed to. And if we fail to live like this, we are harming the family. We don't need the LGBT crowd to destroy the family if Christians are doing it themselves by not fleshing out what God has called them to be. Okay, question. Do you think the church ever wishes that Christ was a better man? No. So no wife should have to wish that either. Come on, come on. Goodbye. Goodbye. Get out of there. Go away. <laughs> wow, it's complicated. So yeah, I, I did. You know, I don't think women should be out there wishing that their man was a better man because I don't think the church ever thinks that of Christ. So we're called to love our wives as Christ loved the church. We just need to do it let's pray father i thank you today for your word again lord uh, it does cut like a two-edged sword father i just pray that you administer our hearts father i just pray that you would ingrain into us the calling that you have put on our lives and that we would desire to flesh out the living and abiding word of god in our marriages and i think if the world would see something special something unique something different in a christian marriage than what they see it might make a difference lord in our world help us lord to fulfill what you've called us to may we be controlled by the spirit of god may we spend time in the word of god pouring over these texts may we memorize these texts it will help us lord to be the people you've called us to be Thank you, Father, for providing everything we need to fulfill what you've called us to do. Help us to do it, Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay. Questions? Comments? Dead silence. Okay, I I don't know who this is from, but it says, front-loaded question. Since we're speaking of marriage, what do you say to those who say that since we are married in the sight of God, we as believers have no need to seek the government's licensure, permission, or approval? The government has done nothing but debase and corrupt God's institution of marriage. Why bother to seek their recognition?" I my personal position is you don't need the government's acceptance, you don't need their permission, and you don't need their license, okay? But here's the thing. If you're just going to be married in a, you know, a Christian ceremony and you're going to leave the government out of it, you have to make some provisions for your wife legally. Okay? My wife had a friend who was living with this guy for 20 years. He got sick and died. <coughs> His parents threw her out in the street and she was out of no, no house, no anything. Because they had nothing. So yeah, you don't need the government, but you're going to have to use, go around in other ways and you know, do government forms and whatever to make sure that she's taken care of. Because you're not loving your wife, you're not providing for her. After you're... Well, you would still... you. You wouldn't have sex. You're not supposed to have sex until you are married. But the marriage doesn't have to be governmental. Okay, so you can just decide. We're married, okay. No, I think you have to go before the church. I think there has to be witnesses there. Marriage is a covenant between two people. And you want to do that in public or with your church family so that it's recognized as a marriage. That is my opinion. We're we're too reliant on the government. Okay, there's nothing there's nothing in the Bible about go get your license. You know, go pay the government money so you can do whatever. You have to pay them for everything. Okay, you they want you to pay to collect rainwater that comes off your roof. You know, build an addition on your house. You know, put a garden in your yard. It, it's just stupid. It's government intervention, and I, I I'm not a big fan of the government. Okay, erase that from the tape so we don't. Does that mean I can just get my and I don't have the go The IRS, well, here's the thing. If, if you, you, it's hard to fight them because if you don't play by their rules, then guess what? Yeah, you end up in trouble, all right? Uh, Norm says, Are these references to water and washing and cleansing by the word that Yeshua was saying to Nicodemus when he told him, Except the man be born again into the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Something Nicodemus should have known being the teacher of Israel. Yes, he should have known about that washing because that was, that was a, like I said, Ezekiel made it clear. It was a, it was a clear thing. That was the reference to you know, God cleansing you, God making you what he wanted you to be. Okay, um, it says, If John 3.2 is about believers having their bodies, 1 John 3.2, changed into heavenly bodies, just like the Yeshua's body had a second coming in AD 70 is true, would that change your view of sanctification of the believer today who wasn't there at the second coming and didn't experience that change that they did in AD 70? Does it make a difference in the sanctification we have today Because today, nobody has a body like Yeshua's body on this earth. Um, First of all, 1 John 3, 2. Let me go there. I don't know what you're talking about body there. 1 John 3, 2. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. But we know that when he appears, we'll be like him. There's nothing in this text about a body. Okay, We're going to be like Christ. I take that as we're going to be righteous, like Christ. It's righteousness. When He comes, we receive righteousness. That's what happened at the second coming. Salvation was complete. That's what it's dealing about. It's not about having a body. And yes, we are completing Him. We are totally sanctified. The moment we trust Christ, the moment He redeems us, we are sanctified in every sense even in the glorified sense. To be glorified is to be in the presence of God. We are in His presence. We're not waiting for something to happen in the future. We have it, and we have it now. Okay. Uh, someone asked, the two becoming one flesh, might that refer to bearing children, two unique individuals producing flesh that is a combined of two? You know, I thought of that, but... What if they, they don't have kids? The two it doesn't mention children in the text. But I, I think that, that, that you could use that analogy, the two definitely become one in their children, but if they don't have children, they're still one flesh in the marriage. Okay? Whether they have kids or not.